Okay, now you can hear me. Yeah. So, I was just uh, hearing this morning about controversy, controversial topics in Shastra. And as we know from popular news media, controversy makes everything interesting. <clears throat> More people will watch your show if it's controversial. So, Srila Bhakti Siddhanta said that if you find controversy, con as they say in England, controversy, you find controversial topics or apparent contradictions in scripture, it's because of a material angle of vision. There actually isn't contradiction. And it, it, it Bhakti Siddhanta said something very interesting. It sanctifies the shastra. The contradictions sanctify the shastra. Within the transcendental realm, there's room for contradiction, which ultimately reconciles itself in the service of Krishna. So what he means is uh, there is no contradiction, it appears to be, from the material perspective. And that's why sometimes Prabhupada would say in discussing the fall of the jiva, he'd just say, don't worry about it, it's, um, you won't understand, inconceivable in our, from the material position. And, and Prabhupada could see we were looking at it from the material position, and therefore he saw that it was uh, difficult for us to understand one of those topics. Um, and it does come up uh, again in what we're going to read, maybe even today. So, when you sometimes hear things which appear contradiction, contradictory, there is a solution. And if you can't understand the solution, then just we, we should try to understand. Um, at, in the present state, we may not understand clearly and we will understand more clearly when we are more advanced. And the other explanation is that sometimes, <clears throat> due to different rasas, the different acharyas are looking at things through the lens of their rasa, and it's a different lens than the lens of another rasa, and so sometimes you get differences that way. So now, the next thing I want to do is test. going directly from my keyboard into my interface. So can you hear this? Yes, okay, so now we've introduced something uh, that I was just lazy about and I had a little problem, but I have an interface which this microphone goes into, which is why this sounds better than just going straight. And I have now connected my keyboard straight into the interface. So, for your listening pleasure. and the pleasure of all the gods who are listening, and Krishna's pleasure, and all our pleasure, and that it will sound a little better. So, let's see how it goes. The sound is horrible. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> yeah.
Everything's plugged in. All right. Does anyone else have a problem with the sound? Yes, sounds bad. Hmm. What sounds bad, the voice or the keyboard? Still some buzzing. Oh, my God. Okay, wait a minute. If I pull this out, is the buzzing stop? Does the, um, has the buzzing stopped now? Tell me. Or maybe the cable wasn't pushed in properly. You know, it's, um, <clears throat> I'm always trying to do things better, and maybe Krishna is saying no need, because I do one class and it works perfectly, and then I do another class and it doesn't. Still buzzing? <clears throat> Still buzzing. Hmm. Uh, it shouldn't be buzzing. Okay. What about now? Still buzzing now? Yes. Still buzzing. No, now the buzzing has stopped. Okay. This is depressing. Okay, I'm going to try it again. It shouldn't buzz, but let's try it one more time. This is so interesting that... One day it buzzes and one day it doesn't buzz. Okay. Okay. Is it buzzing now? Let me know if it's buzzing now. I just I just recreated what would cause it to buzz. Okay, let me know again. It's buzzing when you plug in the keyboard. Oh, 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 oh no. Defective something. All right. Okay. The, the keyboard going directly in project has failed. That's depressing because I really needed that to work. Okay. Now the buzzing has stopped because it's not plugged in. So we just go straight out of the speakers into the microphone. Gopi Janavalava Giribaratari Shotananda Brajajana Ranjana Shotananda Brajajana Ranjana Shotananda Brajajana Ranjana Shotananda Brajajana Ranjana Jamuna tira banachari Jamuna tira banachari Radha Madhava Kunjabi Hari 
I know what I need. I know what I need to make this work. And it's something that's designed. It's designed just for this. But I didn't buy it because I already had this and this. And I thought, well, let me make use of this and this. I have microphones. But this other one is the microphone, and it has a cable as an input for a cable, so you can plug in a keyboard right into the microphone. Mmm, very nice. Actually, a devotee I know has one, and maybe I'll borrow it and see if, it, if I can plug it into the phone. It's designed to go into a computer, if I could plug it into the phone, maybe, maybe if you tell me, I'll get it. It's very nice. 
I just wanted to tell you something I heard today, which has, uh, it's not on the topic, but it's on my mind, and I thought I would share it to you because it's interesting. And It's about marriage, and Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur said, you should only marry someone who you see as more advanced than you, or who is more advanced. And you should always respect and always serve them. Interesting. And then another time he said you should always see that your spouse is belongs to Krishna and is for Krishna's enjoyment and not for your enjoyment. And and then Bhakti Siddhanta ended the article by saying something. He was serious, but it, for us it's going to sound funny. He said, but I've never found anybody that sees their spouse in this way, just as, a, as an object of service. I've never found anybody like that. He said, therefore, I, I could never recommend anyone to get married because I never found anybody that thinks in the right way to enter marriage. Okay, so um, that's interesting, isn't it? So we are going to begin, Hare Krishna to everyone, we're going to begin reading, and Kamaniya, if you're here, I think you must be here. Me, we are reading from What You Are Always With God, Morning Walk, November 1st, 1975 in Nairobi, and is that correct? I need to know. That's what <clears throat> is Kamaniya here, or... Someone assisting Kamaniya if she's not here. I'm just going to go back to the last quote above this and read the last few lines. Just, yeah, we read it, as far as I can tell. Yes. We were talking about the frog in the well and how it's difficult to understand the spiritual dimension because we're, we're comparing it to our well. And in that story, when one frog goes out of the well and he looks out and he sees the ocean, um, and uh, he comes back to tell the frog how big it is. And the frog in the well says, oh, is it twice as big as our well? And the frog other frog says, no, you can't imagine how big it is. Three times bigger? Four times bigger? No, 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 you don't, you don't, under, you, you don't understand. It's not twice as big, three times. No, you, you can't understand. It's not like that. Ten times bigger? No, it's like you can't imagine. So that's the idea of the frog in the well. And we've heard that story a lot, but the idea was he's calculating the size of his well or then trying to understand the size of the Pacific Ocean based on the size of his well. And because we're talking about the spiritual world and Prabhupada's describing it, that's, that's often what we're trying to do is calculate the nature of the spiritual world based on the nature of this world. And we were talking about this Ananda Maya Vyasad, Ananda Chinmaya Rasa, Pratibhavi Tabish, um, the descriptions of the spiritual nature, which is everything is completely com- Posed of eternity, knowledge, and bliss, which that in itself is like, get your mind around that one. Well, this is made of 
this is made of cloth, which we could call earth, and metal, which we could call earth. And, and here we have water, and there's fire in our body, and we all have electricity, there's fire. And there's air we're breathing, and everything is contained in space. This we can understand, but let's see, imagine this, this cover for my phone was made of eternity, knowledge, and bliss. Get your mind around that. And you think, eternity, knowledge, and bliss. Like, how could you make something out of bliss? And you could go on thinking about that for quite some time, and you may never really understand it perfectly. Just to understand how something's made of mind or intelligence is difficult. What to speak of made of spirit in this and so so Prabhupada was explaining that. And we we were talking last week how when you have uh, when you want to understand you really want to understand how miserable this world is, which is it's good to understand it in at least in relation to the spiritual world. Because when you compare it to the spiritual world, then you understand it. If you if you just try to understand it within this context, oh, things are bad, so then you'll compare it to it your, itself. Oh, you know, things are bad here now. We have this problem, that problem. Last week we didn't have this problem. So you're just comparing, you're comparing this world to this world in a better state. And so now it seems bad. But if you compare this world... To the spiritual world, then you actually understand the real nature of this world. And then you'll understand why Krishna says, this is not the place to be, this place is miserable, and you'll get you'll get a full picture. Okay. There everything is made of bliss. Here everything is not made of bliss. There everything is eternal. Here everything is not eternal. There everything is fully conscious. That means there's nothing you don't know. There's no ignorance. There's only awareness. Here, there's lots of ignorance. That's why there's Google, to remove your ignorance. But it'll never be entirely removed, and Google is not removing Maya, as far as I know, unless you read something Krishna conscious. So, understanding the nature of that world, comparing it to this world, in this world, nothing is made of bliss. It's made of matter. Matter's not blissful. We're trying to squeeze bliss, bliss out of matter, which is like trying to squeeze blood out of a stone. It's not easy. And so we're trying, and you know. And the bliss that we're squeezing is imaginary. It's not real. It's not actually bliss. It's not ananda. It's just, it's either sense gratification or we're doing something which enables us to forget the misery. And then we call that bliss. And Prabhupada has said this many times. Um, the next reading is entitled. You're always with God, yes. So I think it's extremely important in understanding this world and why Krishna says it's miserable. Aside from obvious reasons, uh, I have a stomach ache, I have a headache, uh, my spouse just yelled at me, my boss hates me, he's going to fire me. But aside from those obvious reasons, those are all... They're relative miseries within the context of greater miseries. And if you, you just had a nice boss and your, and your spouse wouldn't yell at you and you didn't have a stomachache, then you would say, I'm happy. But actually, your happiness is just the relief of those miseries, which you term as happiness. And the little sense gratification you get will not remain, and oftentimes the ramification of it will be misery, but in that moment, you call it happiness. So that's the illusion. 
And so when you pierce through that illusion, then you understand the real nature of the world. And so just meditate on this. This is such a beautiful thought. There is a world where everything is composed of bliss. That's the nature. That's the fundament, fundamental. That is the fundamental nature of everything. That's interesting, isn't it? Meditate on that one. Before you go to bed tonight, meditate on that one and dream about it. And then we were saying, that's why when you read about the spiritual world where there's envy and there's this and that, it doesn't make sense to us, but you understand it in the context of Ananda, that the envy is blissful. The separation is blissful. The, the so-called whatever negative is blissful because it's within the realm of Ananda and there can only be Ananda. And so those things can only increase Ananda. So in the realm of Ananda, all the rasa, all the exchanges increase Ananda. That's all that basically goes on. It sounds like a, sounds like a place you might want to consider, you know, on your next vacation, you know. Yeah, I think probably you should consider going there. Yeah, it's a good idea. And then we had we had talked about we had talked about um the price you have to pay to get the ticket. Uh, um attention everyone, tickets to Goloka Vrindavan are on sale now. Um previously the price was very expensive. But now they've just gone on sale. They've gone on sale. When did the sale start? Oh, maybe it was 500 and whatever, 12 years ago. I forget exactly, 514. The sale started. But the super sale, the super saver sale started. Uh, <laughs> excuse me. It started in 1965. They went on sale for 16 rounds and four principles. So pick up on the deal. You never know how long that deal's going to last. Maybe some, maybe at some point, some guru's going to come along and say, 64 rounds, 16 doesn't work anymore. Of course, that's not going to happen. But just pick up on the deal. Best price in town. Best deal you'll ever get. Pick up on the deal. And, oh, it's so expensive. No, don't complain about the deal. Okay, so... That's what we had discussed. The sum of what we had discussed last uh, must have been last Friday. So what we're reading is not systematic. One thought is not leading into a next. What we're reading is random because I was searching questions that Prabhupada was asked about the spiritual world. So I'm just pasting them in the order I was searching them. And the order was not systematic, it's not thematic. And therefore, a lot of what we're hearing, is, it, it can be repetitious, which I don't think is bad. Unless you have perfect memories, it's always good to review. So not necessarily are we going to read the same thing. Occasionally the same thing may come up maybe once or twice, because I, I forgot that we had read it and I reposted it, because now I found it in another search, different search I'm doing. But... For the most part, everything we're reading, except occasionally, maybe once or twice in the, in the next, um, this week, we might read something we read before. Um, but everything else is new. Okay, so 
This is entitled, You're Always with God. It's a morning walk, November 1st, 1975, in Nairobi. <laughs> Indian is asking Srila Prabhupada, Srila Prabhupada, when we speak of parts and parcels of God, does it mean that we were there with God before he came to the world? Oh, no. Oh, no, I posted the question. The question. I posted it. Why did I do this? I told you we weren't going to talk about it. And here it is. I posted it. Okay, well, let's see what Prabhupada says. Let's see the inconceivable answer we get. The question is, when we speak of parts and parcels, does it mean we were there with God before we came to this world? Prabhupada, you are part and parcel. Then, what is that? Brahmananda, if we are part and parcels of God, does it mean we were with God before coming to the Prabhupada? You are always with God. Even your rebellious condition, you are with God, just like a prisoner. A prisoner is always with the government. Laughter. But in one department, he is kicked. And in one department, he is padded. That's all. So if you prefer to be kicked, you remain in Maya. But you are always in connection with God. And now you're saying, well, let, let's analyze this, because some of you are probably thinking, doesn't seem like Prabhupada directly answered the question. And often what you'll find is that Prabhupada answers the question not necessarily of what the person is asking, but he asks the question of what the person needs to hear. So Prabhupada may rephrase the question in his mind or just give the answer that not, maybe you look at it and say, that wasn't, didn't seem to be exactly what the man was asking, but Prabhupada's giving another answer. So he's answering what what the man needs to hear. And what he's saying is, God is everywhere, everything is his energy, and you're always with him, but there's this curtain of maya that you've chosen to put in front of you so you don't see him. So there's no place, there's no time, there's no, no anywhere you can go where Krishna doesn't exist, but you can choose not to see him. And that's called maya. And then if you choose not to see him, then you get, you get to see maya, and Maya will slap you, but if you choose to see Krishna, you will get he will pat you. So you you have to make a choice between being patted and being slapped. That's the way Prabhupada chose to answer the question. Indian man. Lord Krishna says, I am in everything. Prabhupada, yes. This punishment condition is also God's creation, external energy. You cannot live for a second without God, but one who knows he is blessed and who does not know he is condemned. But in other words, Prabhupada knows God's everywhere, but the person who doesn't know that God is everywhere, he's condemned. You're always with God. That is your position. So this is interesting in that Sometimes when Prabhupada is asked this question, were we, were we with Krishna before we fell? This is the, one of the answers he gives. You can never not be with Krishna. And then another time he'll say, 
someone someone will say, did we fall from Brahman? And Prabhupada would say, well, Brahman's a fallen condition. So you can't fall from a fallen condition. You're already fallen. So to give various answers. But in this this particular answer, did were we with Krishna? Uh, did we fall from Krishna? Prabhupada chose to answer, there's no position in this world where there isn't Krishna. So you... Did we see Krishna? Well, one time Prabhupada said, yes, it just like just like your father impregnates your mother. So you must have seen your father. And and you'll think, well, I didn't see him. I was just, uh, I'm just an embryo in the womb. I never saw him. And so Prabhupada gives that example. No, the father is there. But like Krishna is there. He's the seed. So you've come in connection with him in some way. But that's another answer. But you have a lot of comments, and I know what they are. How could there? How could we be envious if we're in the spiritual world? The perennial question. Okay, so we were talking about happiness. So Krishna Karshan, he says, what about happiness in the mode of goodness? The only problem um, with happiness in the mode of goodness is that you'll die in the mode of goodness and come back. Yeah, and the other problem with happiness in the mode of goodness is that there's pain first. In passion, you get the pleasure first, the pain after. In goodness, you get the pain, the austerity, the sacrifice, the sense control. You get the pleasure after. So your pleasure lasts longer, but it's not devoid of pain. So that's a material inebriety. There's still pain. There's, it's not pure because it's material. That's the difference. So still, if you compare ananda to sattvaguna, you'll see the difference. There's no pain in ananda. But there is pain in Satvaguna. You have to pay a painful you have to pay with some pain, with some austerity, with some sacrifice in order to get the happiness. And yes, the happiness will remain. You do austerity, you feel happy. And yes, sattva will be the, the bridge or the gateway or the elevator or the staircase to Vishuddha Sattva, the transcendental state. So it's it's better. But if you're analyzing it purely from the comparison of happiness in sattva to happiness in the spiritual world, you will find that it's it's not unadulterated. And the other problem which Prabhupada says is that nobody can be purely situated in sattva because if you're in sattva, you're connected, you're around passionate ignorance. They're, they're, you're not totally aloof from them and there will be some effect unless you live in, in satya yuga where everything is only sattvic, especially now because everything is so tamasic. And you can't be perfectly in sattva, so you'll be still somewhat affected by passion and ignorance. And then you'll have to deal with the happiness that comes from passion and ignorance, which means there's more suffering. So there's no unadulterated happiness. And then, and then you have this material perspective, and some people say this. I don't think generally devotees don't say this, but some people say, well, if in the spiritual world it's all happiness, it would be boring. Yeah, but, you know, your vacations aren't boring, and your vacations, you're just having a good time, and you wish you could make them longer. It's not boring. But even if you think it's boring, it's increasing, so it can't get boring. It's, oh, so much happiness would get boring. You need misery to, to balance, to contrast it. Yeah, it. That's maybe true materially, but not spiritually. But it's dynamic, so it's ever-increasing. So 
it even even if you could get bored, you couldn't because it would just get new and fresh and different and better and more amazing. And yes, there may be some suffering, so-called within the Ananda nature, but that that may create variety in the bliss. But there's never a time when it's not bliss. And because it's spiritual, you don't need misery to appreciate the bliss. Here, you know, people say, well, you know, if everything's good, how would you appreciate it? Because that would be normal. And to some degree, that's true. So they say, well, you need some pain to appreciate the pleasure, you know. Like Friday nights feel really good because I'm working all week. If I wasn't working all week, it wouldn't feel so great. So there's some truth in that, but that's material. Okay. So that answers that question. And then we have uh, envy in the spiritual world. I thought there was no envy. No, Prabhupada said there is envy. Uh, we had read that last week. Uh, he listed some other qualities. I can't remember all the qualities he listed. But he was listing, there was a, you know, a three or four what we would consider negative qualities or negative negative emotions. He said they they all exist in the spiritual world, but everything that exists in the spiritual world is enhancing our relationship with Krishna, and as a consequence, enhancing bliss, enhancing rasa. So it's all there. You remember I was saying how Radharani sometimes becomes angry with Krishna, but she does it because you know she knows Krishna likes it. So uh, Prabhupada gave the example: the gopis are envious. Because they see another gopi doing service and they get inspired. They say, I'm envious of you because you're doing better service, so I'm going to try to do better service than you. But it's not to put them down. It's not material competition. They get inspired. So their envy becomes a source of inspiration. And there's no material envy in it. Therefore, there's no material jealousy or hatred or anger, anything that would accompany envy in this world. So we just have to remember within that transcendental realm, there's no material quality. So anytime the word comes up like lust or envy in relation to Leela, we always have to remember it has nothing to do with lust and envy as we know it, but it's always in relation to love of Krishna. And it's always in relation to something that is helping the devotee get closer to Krishna. And if you just if you don't understand anything more than that, if you just understand that, at least that that will clear the fog. And then as you progress and study in Krishna consciousness, then you'll start to understand how envy works, how anger works. These are these are things, uh, these are pastimes that go on in Krishna Leela to enhance the variety and the taste. So everything Everything that goes on in Krishna Leela, not just what appears to be positive, but what appears to be negative is always positive. And that's how we have to see it. There's no negative, so there's no envy as we know it. There's no lust as we know it. It's only positive. It's it, The lust and envy here is a reflection of it in its pure state. So uh, Prabhupada explains and the Acharyas explain that everything in the spiritual world is in its pure state. And when it comes down here, it becomes perverted. So the problem is when you try to understand what's pure from the perverted platform, you can't. So you have to try to understand it from there and understand this is perverted. Because if I'm trying to understand from the perversion what's real, that's like trying to understand from looking at the shadow, like I see your shadow and I'm trying to understand what you look like. That, that's impossible. I mean, generally I can tell something. You have short hair, long hair, you're thin, you're tall. I can understand that, but what actually you look like on your face, I can't understand. So it, 
that's where it fails when you're trying to understand this world, excuse me, trying to understand that world from the perspective of studying this world. It's better to understand that's the reality and then understand how this is the reflection, that, that this is contaminated. And there it's pure. There can be pure envy, there can be pure anger, there can be pure lust, which has no inebriates, which, no, which have no material qualities, which have no symptoms uh, that are experienced here. I mean, slight symptoms, anger, you know, Radharani looks angry, but it's all generated out of love. It's not generated out of the modes of nature. It can't be, because in this world, everything's generated from the modes of nature, and there, there's no modes of nature. So if you think, oh, they have envy there, how could they have envy? We're trying to get our head around, how can they have envy? But there's no modes of nature, so it's not this envy. It's not generated from passion or ignorance. So it's the pure, pure form. Uh, sometimes a Prabhupada says, uh, pure sexual psychology. Um, who, one of the Acharyas, I forget who it was, explained the concept of pure sexual psychology that... <clears throat> This pure love of Krishna, it perverts itself in this world and it becomes sex desire, becomes lust. <clears throat> but the pure desire, pure sex, so to speak, is love of Krishna. So, you know, if you, if you say the word love, it has many connotations. The love of a mother, the love of friends, but it also has the conjugal connotation, which, which and that connotation is, is also going to be sexual. And so, when we, then when you think of the conjugal connotation in the spiritual world, that idea comes. And so, that idea is material, and that, that idea has to be discarded to understand the spiritual. There it doesn't exist. Here it, perver there, here it comes here and perverts itself. So now it's the opposite. So here it exists, there it doesn't exist. There, envy just generates more uh, affection and inspiration. Lust generates more attachment to Krishna. Anger is a vehicle which increases rasa. Here, it all takes us away from Krishna. So that's how to understand it. Uh, understanding it from trying to understand the shadow, trying to understand what you look like by looking at your shadow, it's only going to give a very vague idea. But if I see what you look like and then I look at your shadow, I go, oh, okay, now I understand why the shadow looks like that, something like that. If that doesn't answer the question adequately, then ask me uh, more questions. Kamini says, I'm confused. Did you post the wrong reading? No, no we got it right. Okay. If everything in the spiritual world is made of bliss, it means that culture and lifestyle are also of that nature. Knowing that the Vedic culture in the material world is most similar Uh, knowing that, whoops, Barshana, this is from Barshana Das. Knowing that the Vedic culture in the material world is the most similar to culture of the spiritual world, why do some bhakti practitioners reject that culture and good habits and accept another culture that is not similar to the culture of that spiritual world? Is that positive for bhakti practice? What a question! The answer to that question will take a four part seminar by Barshana Das. I was actually thinking about this question recently and how in, if you live in the West, 
and you grew up in the West, this question is not, it doesn't occupy you so much because you understand that culturally, for a Westerner to adopt Krishna consciousness, there are a lot of cultural aspects that just don't work for them and don't make sense, which is okay. Some of them, not all of them, but some are okay because if they can get the essence of Krishna consciousness, if they can use their Rajasic culture, if they can employ it, or Tamasic culture, but if it can be somehow employed in Krishna service, which sometimes it can't, but sometimes it can, and it has to be because we're in that culture, then adopting a more Vedic viewpoint may not work. I think there's another problem of Varshan Das, is actually defining the Vedic viewpoint. And the third problem, which relates to the first problem, is you know defining it, because sometimes there's disagreement about what is and isn't Vedic. Is it just Indian or is it Vedic? Because if it's Indian, it doesn't mean it's Vedic. It just means the Indians adopted that culture. And it may be Vedic, it may not be. It may be Muslim, it may be combination of Muslim, Indian, Western. So that that's another issue. Kind of like, you know, are you more Krishna conscious eating dal and japatis or more, or is it okay to eat pizza and salad? And ultimately, the answer is, if you offer it with love to Krishna and eat it with devotion, then it doesn't really matter, Krishna. If we'll take your pizza, but the deities want dal and japatis, okay, then we offer them dal and japatis. But we're talking about in your personal life, so. I was thinking about this, Varshana, in relation to some things I had read in Shastra that are very difficult to relate to for Western people because it's not the way their world works. So it looks something like this. You read something in Shastra and say, this is the ideal, this is the way it should be, human society would be better if it's this way, and then you read it and you think, no, that's actually causing the problems in human society. It doesn't make sense. If human society were this way, it would be better because then you'll look at things with invaded culture about Varnashram and division of society and it goes so, it goes so much against what we have ingrained in us, in our society. So it's hard for a Westerner to get their mind around that. And then I think, I think the icing on the cake of this problem is we understand, no, no, it's Varnashram, it's not discrimination. It's just nature, and that's, this is how society should be organized, and that's ideal, and Prabhupada said that. But the problem is misuse of it. So you get, okay, you, we make you Brahmins, and you're on, you're on top, but because the Brahmins aren't pure, they mess everything up, and they exploit the whole system. Or like, the wife should be submissive to the husband, and the wife, and the husband beats her. I mean, a disqualified man, a disqualified Brahmin. You should surrender to Guru, do whatever you want. And then the Guru exploits you because he's not qualified. So that's that's one area we run into problems within the Vedic because the Vedic, it needs a context to work, right? If If I say, you surrender to a Guru, you give your life to a Guru, you do whatever he says, we have to make sure that Guru is completely pure and he won't exploit you. Otherwise, you have a problem. That guru is going to exploit you. You should do whatever your husband says. You should be obedient. You should be chaste. We have to make sure that husband has 100% love for you, 100% compassion, will never exploit you, will always take care of you, will always serve you. 
then you can do it. Then it's easy. So now, uh, uh, Prabhupada says, you know, the girls should get married when they're 13. And now the fathers, even the Indian fathers, are saying, I'm sending my girl to university because if her husband ever leaves her, at least she can support herself. And, you know, this whole idea of going girls going to university, that's not Vedic. Prabhupada never said that. He said they just have to learn how to be wives, and they just have to learn to cook and be chaste. And that's all they need. And a little reading and writing, and that's their education. Most of it they'll get from their mother, and they'll get married when they're young, and they'll be good wives. Their husbands will be happy. They'll have nice families. Uh, their husbands will be the guru. They'll enlighten them. But... Okay, number one, as we said, where's the husband to do that? Number two, it's illegal to get married at 13. Um, look at the divorce rate, number three. And what if the extended family sometimes, what does the girl do? So the father thinks, you know, you should go to university and get a secure job because you never know what's going to happen. Your husband could die, he could divorce you, he could cheat on you, he could abuse you and you'll have to get out. Um, there are shelters for abused women because they don't have their own means of income and their husbands are abusing them verbally or um, physically or sexually and they have nowhere to go because they can't support themselves. So the government has shelters in some countries where they can stay while they transition. So, you know, that's the challenge of being Vedic within a context that doesn't support it. So that's been my realization when I, when I read something Vedic and we all look at it and go, we say, yes, this is perfect. You know, this makes, you know, these things are all perfect. But then then you transport them, you transport this Vedic plant into the West, and then wait a minute, this plant can't grow in the West. It's the wrong soil, and you want this plant. It's a beautiful plant. It's the plant we want. But say no, we have to put it in a greenhouse. We have to give it these nutrients. It's it's a different program. So that's the problem. So, as far as the Vedic works, yes, but you have to have context for it. Otherwise, it may not work. So if you look at, for example, Varshana, if you look at marriages in the West, they're a little different. Although India is catching up, they're a little different than Indian marriages, where Indian women are a little more tolerant of their husband's idiosyncrasies or even of their abuse. Western women are a little less tolerant because they see it as unjust, which it is. But the Indian woman sees, you know, the chastity and tolerance, that's what you should be. Okay, it's a good quality, but sometimes it works against them because they become emotionally abused and emotionally damaged. So how do you balance it? And then the parents don't want to take her back because it's shameful in Indian society to leave your husband or get divorced it's you know so it's like ah, if if it's not if the context doesn't work, sometimes some instructions don't work and then you have girls who are not raised to be chaste wives they were raised pretty much like the boys to go out and compete in the world get ahead get a position make a lot of money um if you look at the world now you'll see Women are doing everything the guys are doing, and a lot of women do it really well. And you may say, yeah, this is weird. You have women boxers, women wrestlers, women big wave surfers, mountain climbers, you know, skiing tall mountains, doing all this fearless stuff that's normally considered male. And so 
when you try to transplant the ideal male-female in the Western world, it's kind of convoluted because not all women are exactly like the women the Vedas describe because they grew up in a different culture. And you tell the women, just, you know, be submissive, serve your husband, be chaste, do whatever he wants. And that, you know, that idea may sound attractive or okay, but it's not how they were raised. And then then they look at their husband and say, this guy, I'm just going to do whatever he wants. You know, half the time he doesn't even know what he's talking about. And, you know, he gets up late, he chants horrible rounds. You know, I haven't seen him read Bhagavatam in three months, and I'm just going to do whatever he wants. So... And then the women say, and the women always say, yeah, if my husband is exhibiting Krishna consciousness, it's so easy to be that humble, chaste, submissive wife. It's natural. I want to be. But if he's not, it's really hard. It's, it's, and you might say the Indian women have an easier time doing that because they're raised like that. And it's true. They do have an easier time. But when you don't have the culture and then you try to transplant it, that's when we run into problems. And then when you're preaching, you run into more problems with rituals and names and the things we do that are strange and people are looking at it, why did you do that? And so sometimes it becomes a, a problem. And the last thing I will say, because this is, I said, is a four-part series seminar and we don't want to take it up the whole class with it, but it's a very interesting study and I think this is common sense. Although common sense, I don't think a lot of us have thought about it. Religious conversion, studies about what creates religious conversion and what creates obstacles to religious conversion. And what they found is the less cultural differences, the less cultural hoops you have to jump through from the culture you live in to the culture of that religion, the easier it's going to be to join. Which is why we find uh, um, so many people visit temples in India every day. That's their culture, that's their religion, and they go and there's deities, and the more deities, the better. <clears throat> and the more weird rituals, the better. And the Indians, like, you know, you can worship anything, right? You worship a cow, and that's so amazing. And the Indians understand how worshiping cow. Then we're worshiping Tulsi. You go, oh, Tulsi, she's pure devotee. You knew that from birth. And the Westerners are like, Hmm, why there were plant worship? I don't know if this religion's for me. And on and, and then, you know, we eat with our hands because when you touch the food with your hands, it according to Ayurveda, it helps the digestion. And it's like I've never touched food with my hand before. And then um you evacuate, and then there's, you know, the best way to clean yourself is with water, for sure, no question, but they've never done that. You know, so on and on, one hoop after another hoop. So you're putting all these hoops, right? And then and then you have the kirtan with the big wampers and 64 mridangas and, you know, and you have to wear earplugs and the people are like, ah! You know, it's like, what kind, is this like some tribal religion, you know? This is like too intense for me. You know, I like yoga, I like to be calm. So, you know, we could list 108, 108 hoops people have to jump through to become devotees. The more hoops you can remove, and obviously some you can't because it's part of the practice, but the more cultural hoops you can remove that aren't essential, the easier you're going to make it for people to become devotees. And that's why it's so easy to preach in India because what we do is 
their culture. They're used to it. It doesn't, it doesn't create a problem for them. I think for some Indians now, it probably does. But for, for most, it doesn't. Now, I'll tell you one last thing because it's so interesting. <clears throat> and this brings up the whole, like, well, why don't we just do what we always did? You know, we, in the 70s, 60s, we made so many devotees, and we did it with bald heads and tilak. We had bald heads and war paint, and war paint, tilak. Nobody had bald heads in, in the 60s and 70s except some... Yeah, I didn't even know who had bald heads. It was rare, very rare. Yeah, people had bald heads are the people who had bald heads because their hair didn't grow. But other than that, I don't, I don't remember, and there may be some exception, but it would be rare, people with bald heads. So bald heads was like, oh, that's scary. Now you look at it, it's trendy. But in those days, a guy with a shaved head was like, whoa, I'm going to walk on the other side of the street. You know, like, like, is this guy like a serial killer or what? It was more like that. So um, here we are, bald heads, dhotis, which nobody knows what dhoti is. Dhoti looks like bedsheet only. Here we are, shaved head, uh, war paint on our forehead and wearing bedsheet and going on the street, ching, ching, ching. We look very crazy, I'm telling you. But no, it was the hippie. It was the hippie ear and all the hippies said, this is cool, this is far out. This is mystical. It was like perfect for the hippie culture. It worked. Anything different, anything mystical. They were like, wow, you know, sign me up for this. So we didn't have to change a thing. The more incense we burned, the more rituals we did, the more hippies were like, wow, cool. You know, they're all in LSD. Everything's cool. The more far out, the better. Then we see the, show them the DD and they're like, wow. Cool, man. Right? It, this is 2020. There, there has to be a different strategy. We have to redefine cool in 2020. That's not as cool as it was. For some people, it's still cool, but not cool for everybody. So there are different things that are cool now. And for preaching, we have to define that and understand it. And... Now, your own personal life is a different issue. In your home, you can be as Vedic as you want. And I would recommend, yeah, for devotees, Vedic things are generally sattvic. Yeah, so however much Vedic you can be in your home and your lifestyle that works for you, yeah, it, it's, it, it definitely works. But if you're not into it, then it becomes a problem. I had a, uh, a dear devotee a friend, and, you know, as... as ISKCON became more, uh, more Indian people were joining our congregations and some temples, which had no Indians at one point, now practically were all Indians, 90 plus percent, which, which there's nothing wrong in and of itself. It just means that we're succeeding and, and Indian people are attracted and they're becoming great devotees and supporters. That's all fantastic. But for him, it was so prominent in all the temples and then there was, you know, when the Indians are there, then they want to make the temples more Indian, so the food's more Indian and this and that. And he said, you know, I didn't join ISKCON to become an Indian. I didn't join ISKCON to become a Hindu. So I have to consider that. That Prabhupada preached in the West without all the, not many, not totally a lot of Vedic trappings. It was just like, okay, you know, do what you do, do it the way you do it. Here are some rituals, here are some points. Follow those. 
And so if it becomes too Vedic, a lot of devotees will say, well, I didn't join to become Vedic. I like being American. I like my, I like being Italian. I like my pizza. You know, I like, I like my guitar. I like doing kirtan with a guitar. Oh, it's so Rajasik Prabhu. It's not Vedic. You have to play a sitar, not a, you know. So, you know, there may be some validity to those arguments, but on the other hand, we are culturalized in specific ways. So, we are who we are. And anything which is sattvic, we should go for it. I, I would say, maybe in answer to your question, say, yeah, let's do what's sattvic. Vedic may not always be ideal for everyone in every situation. Even for bhakti, it may not be the ultimate goal. But I want to make a last statement to balance what I just said because it sounds like what I said is kind of like anti-Varnashram. And I don't mean that at all. I'm just, I'm just talking about the difficulties in adapting to it. Now, the last thing I would say is there are a lot of devotees who are very Vedic, very Vaishnav culture. They love Vedic culture. They love Vaishnav culture. There are women who, you know, this idea of submission, chastity, serving your husband, it just resonates with them. And you have other women in the West, like it doesn't exactly resonate with them. You might say it should, and they might say, I know it should, but it doesn't. I wasn't raised that way. So this is not to minimize all those devotees who are who can resonate 100% with Vedic culture, who want to adapt it, who do adapt it, who do preach it. All I'm saying is we should be careful to understand that not everyone will find it as useful as others. We're not talking about particulars here. I think if we argue particulars, we could say, yeah, everybody should do this, this Vedic thing everybody should do. But this other thing, it may require adaptation. And then you'll see in Prabhupada's teachings when something which is Vedic, cult, let's say we're just talking culturally Vedic, like the chaste wife, when he would sometimes see it wouldn't work it wasn't working, he would just elevate it to more of a Krishna conscious, respect one another, serve together, help one another type thing, rather than, you know, he, he kind of bring it to like, okay, you both like this, help one another, serve one another, respect one another, love one another, rather than kind of like, okay, do whatever he says, even if he's, even if he's not a good man or a good devotee, do what he says. That mentality does not work so well in the Western frame. And we're having problems now with the, the Black Lives Matters issue because you find you can find things in our books which seems to say we don't agree with that. Ah, do we not agree with it? Or, and that's the problem with some Vedic statements. They appear like very unpolitically correct, some of them. Uh, of course, if you get the whole body of the Vedas, then you'll see they're not politically incorrect. But if you don't understand them deeply, they seem they seem politically correct because some races are denigrated as inferior. And so some people read that and say, "Well, if that's Vedic, uh, get me out of here," you know. So there's that other problem of misunderstanding what is Vedic and just a cursory reading of of a few shlokas of Manu Samhita, and then you make decisions like, okay, this is how it should be, without understanding the whole context of the scripture and everything that's in our other scriptures, then you could make mistakes. So I don't want to say any more. 
because thank you for asking that, but that is a big topic. And I don't know if I answered it satisfactorily. And Varshana, if I didn't, or you have some comment, then you can make that comment. So Jyotirmayi, formerly Joanna, is now Jyotirmayi. This is a very important point, Maharaj, that we have three modes of material energy always. Is this why we keep on struggling? Yeah. Just when you think you've made it to the mode of goodness, the mode of passion knocks on the door and goes, Hello, don't leave me out of the house. Uh, don't lock me out. You know, you lock me out of the house. Uh, so they're, they're really close. And Prabhupada says that pure sattva does not exist in this age. You can't have pure sattva. But you can have pure Krishna consciousness. So Prabhupada said if we're purely in Krishna consciousness, which means our sadhana is good, we won't be, won't have a problem with passion and ignorance. They just, they won't, they'll be there, but they won't be a problem. Just like we live in this world. So we see so many horrible things, we associate with the modes of nature, but if you're Krishna conscious, they're there, but they just don't affect you. So yes, if you're Krishna conscious, passion and ignorance will be there. They just won't affect you, or they won't affect you much. And the more you advance, the less they affect you. And at one happy day in your life, Jyotirmayi, you will not have any problem with the modes of nature. You just won't have any material contamination. It'll just be Krishna in your life, and that's all. And the struggle is over, and you can sing, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. You, well, you can sing Jai, Jai, Jai if you want. You've made it. You arrived. That will be a happy day, everyone. No influence of the modes of nature. Even to be purely in goodness would be quite a happy day. So I've always said that the paradox of this world is that what we're after, the sense gratification, the material enjoyment, is born of passion and ignorance. And the nature of passion and ignorance is that it causes misery. So the very thing that we're searching for in passion and ignorance to make us happy inherently has misery attached to it. So it's the supreme paradox because you can't get you can't get pure happiness in passion and ignorance. It's always accompanied by misery. It's it's in it's integral. It it's in that. You know, you want to try to enjoy the opposite sex. Has anyone ever tried to enjoy the opposite sex without suffering? I don't think so. Not not according to all the songs I hear. But if you, if you want to serve the opposite sex, purely respect them, show affection, then there won't be misery, because that's sattva. So that's the paradox. And it's really, really important to understand this paradox, because the whole illusion of maya is based on passion and ignorance. Let's, let's enjoy passion and ignorance. That's the, whole, that's the name of the game, right? Isn't it? I'm going to close this a little bit. Get the ultimate lighting. Okay. So, you know how we were saying in the spiritual world, ananda is inherent in the very substance of it? Well, material enjoyment, misery is inherent in the very substance of it. And so, we get the enjoyment, the intelligence shuts down, and we think, oh, everything's fine. Then you get the misery later. You ate your favorite foods, and now you, you uh, don't feel good, or you gain three pounds, or, you know, it's, it becomes a catalyst for a disease that's slowly developing. 
maybe some heart disease or cholesterol problem or something. So that's how we should see it. So the happy day will be when you're in, in the mode of goodness. But passion and ignorance, if you want passion and ignorance, all I can say is inherent within them is misery. So you can't get pure happiness without misery if you're doing it in passion and ignorance. You just can't. It doesn't work that way. They'll always be suffering, no matter what. Um, there's, there's, a, there's this phenomena of, of when you do something that you know 100%, you're convinced, is wrong. It's, it's such an interesting phenomenon. And you're doing it because it gives you pleasure. But as soon as you do it, or even while you're doing it, it gives you pain. Isn't that interesting? What a conundrum. And we all go through that, and that is the plight of the addict. The addict cannot give up what they're doing, and every time they do it, they say, I'll never do it again because it causes me pain. So pain, that's the most, I think, graph, the addict is the most graphic way we understand inherent misery. Because even while they're doing it, you know, they're getting satisfaction, but inside they're like beating themselves up. Why are you doing this? That's happiness and ignorance. The pain, and in ignorance, the pain accompanies the pleasure. They happen at the same time. And the pleasure is really, the pleasure is just, it's not really pleasure because the pleasure is causing so much pain. It's not really pleasure. And that's why Krishna says happiness and ignorance, it's, it, it's painful in the beginning, it's painful in the middle, and it's painful in the end. So the pleasure and the pain are all mixed up. It's like you get them at the same time, so you can't really enjoy it. It's like you know the sand and the sweet rice. The neem leaves and the sweet rice, you're getting it at the same time. In passion, you get the enjoyment, then you get the misery. Eat the sweet ball, and then you get the bat in the head. Right? In ignorance, you're getting knocked in the head while you're eating the sweet ball. It's like, oh, I'm eating the sweet ball, getting knocked in the head. Should I eat more? Oh, I love the sweet ball. It tastes so good. Bang! Bang! That's, that's probably the description I could give of ignorance. And passion is, I get the sweet ball, I enjoy the sweet ball, and a few hours later, bang! And in goodness, bang. And then I get the sweet ball. But I but the goodness, the bang and goodness is voluntary. You you bang yourself in the head. Okay, bang, bang. Now I can eat the sweet ball. And now everything's good because the sweet ball is not gonna harm me. So the, the, maybe maybe it's a bad example. Maybe in goodness there is no sweet ball. It's a it's an almond date ball. Yeah. So you do the okay, okay, I've got the example. So in goodness, the bang on the head is, I'm not going to eat the gulab jamun, I'm going to eat the healthy almond date sweet ball with carob chips and coconut. Or without coconut, if you don't like coconut. And um, so I have to make this austerity, bang, bang, I'm not going to eat the gulab jamun or the other sweet. And then I eat the sweet and then I feel satisfied, I feel good, I feel healthy with the other sweet, I feel tired, yeah, like that. So that's the example. Now Krishna Krishnakashini is going to talk about being bored in heaven, being bored in the spiritual world. I believe people think heaven is boring, 
because they don't know that the spiritual world is dynamic and there are spiritual problems there. <laughs> Remember when I was a little girl, I was... having a hard time. My thumb, the see more, is not activated by my thumb. When I was a little girl, I was preached in the church that heaven means old God is sitting on a throne and we as angels are sitting around him, glorifying him. Well, it sounds a bit boring indeed. Well, unless you become Celine Dion, then you'd probably be okay, right? <laughs> this is Krishna Karshan, he's going to incarnate as Celine Dion in the spiritual world. Is that how you pronounce her name? Celine Dion? Um, well, <laughs> this just proves a point that, as Prabhupada often said, we know Krishna's address. We know what he's doing. We know his name, address, we got his phone number, we know his mother, we know his father. Hey, I know God's father. Do you know God's father? God has a father? Oh my God. Yeah, God has a father. You didn't know you didn't know God has a father? What, where have you been? What's wrong with you? We know that. And I, shh, shh, shh. I know God's girlfriend. You know God's girlfriend? God has a girlfriend? Are you kidding me? Yeah, God has a girlfriend. No way. Yeah, he's got a girlfriend. Really? Are you serious? God has a girlfriend? Yeah, he's got a girlfriend. What's the big deal? You got a girlfriend. Why can't he have a girlfriend? Oh, yeah. Hmm. Hmm. I never thought of that. Yeah, you never thought of that because you went to the church your whole life and they never told you that. That's what's wrong with you. Hmm. Okay, we're not going to do a skit like that because that would be offensive. But that's what Prabhupada meant indirectly, or maybe directly. He said, they don't know. They don't know who is God. They don't know what he's doing. They don't have his, we have his name, address. We... We know what he's doing. Right now, you know what Krishna's doing. It's about time for breakfast. And then right after breakfast, he's going out with the cows. So if you have, uh, you can look up Astakalya Lila and it tells you what Krishna's doing at every time of the day and night. And so you can just check. If someone says, well, what is God doing? You go, okay, let me check the chart here. Oh, right now, he's taking the cows out. Right now, he's eating breakfast. Right now, he's milking cows. Right now, oh, it's noontime, he's at Radhakund meeting his girlfriends. We know it all. And when you're more advanced, this is what you meditate on all day. Instead of, well, let me check my Facebook, you meditate. Okay, well, it's 12 o'clock, Krishna's at Radhakund now with the gopis, and you meditate on that. So, um, I'm here to tell all of you, don't worry about going back to Godhead. It is not boring. Believe me. If the word boring applies to anything, it's probably to most of our lives, especially if you're working like eight, ten hours a day at a job you hate, then boring would be a good description of your life. Don't worry. When you go back to Godhead, no jobs, no boring jobs. If you don't like your job, that should be an impetus to go back to Godhead because there, there are no boring jobs. Okay, Tanya. Tanya helped us, right? Tanya, you helped finish the Russian forgiveness course. Thank you for that. That was amazing. We're releasing a forgiveness course now online in Russian by the mercy of Tanya. Right? You're the Tanya that did it. 
There are many Tanyas in the world. I'm assuming you are the, the Tanya, the one and only. Just today I read the following statement by Pope Francis. God is young. He is always new. Wow, he knows. Pope Francis, he must be reading Prabhupada's books. Pope Francis is reading Prabhupada's books. Or, you know what Pope Francis is reading? He's reading all the books locked up in the Vatican that no one else can read. I guess our vision of Krishna and the spiritual world is just a matter of spiritual advancement. Welcome, Rajesh. Ankush says, Why do we think that Krishna will accept our prayers, which makes us to think we will go back to Godhead? Are we, are we that qualified? No, we're not that qualified, but Krishna is, that Krishna is loving and merciful. That's why. That the only, we, we never think that anything we're going to get in Krishna consciousness is due to our qualification. We just think it's due to his love and mercy. You know that prayer, there's a few prayers like this, which are quite interesting. And the devotee expresses exactly what you're expressing. Excuse me, I'm just sitting up a little straighter. So the devotee is expressing what you're expressing, that I don't feel qualified to ask you, Krishna, for mercy and I really don't even have hope that I can be purified. He said, but I know you're merciful, so so by your mercy I can be successful. Actually, I can't move back because then I can't, so I have to move the camera up a little bit. So yes, that's the answer. We're not qualified, but Krishna's merciful. And so... You know, you might say, why would God love me? I'm so sinful. I'm so this or that. And the answer is because he's God and he's not like you. You say, even my mother would chastise me when I did this and that. Yeah, because she's not like God. Krishna's not like that. So if you had a very disciplinary mother and father or a mother and father who always chastised you or always said you're not good enough or why can't you do this better, whatever. Don't think Krishna's like that. That We, we tend to think Krishna's like our parents because when we're kids, our parents are more or less gods to us. And so, and according to psychology, they say that people's concept of God is very similar to their concept, to the concept they have of their parents. So if their parents are very liberal and generous and kind and open and forgiving, then they think God's like that. And if their parents are very disciplinary and strict and not so forgiving, then they think, well, that must be what God's like. Isn't that interesting? So this is a good point. If if you're thinking Krishna's like your parents, unless your parents were very, very, very merciful, very forgiving, unadulterated loving, then he's not exactly like your parents. Somewhat like your parents, but not maybe not in every respect. So don't don't try to understand Krishna materially. Why would Krishna love me? I'm so this, I'm so that. And then the next statement is, I don't think he loves me. Well, how do you know? Did you ask him? 
What's your evidence? Your evidence is, well, I'm so this or that. No, that's not evidence. That's not evidence at all. Because Krishna doesn't think like you or he doesn't think like the people who, who have criticized you. He doesn't think that way. So that's important. Don't think Krishna is like just some ordinary person who won't like you because you're, you do something wrong. If you're trying, he likes you. That's all. Finished. How are you, Prabhu? Very hot and sweaty I am right now. I don't have the AC on. I tried opening the windows. I have the, um, I have the, um, how's the weather in Alachua? Oh, the Bombay effect. We have the Bombay effect here, hot and sweaty. Um, so Jyotirmai says, I'm a woman, I go to university and study, not because I have to have a way out of a bad marriage, but because I am a human being and I deserve education and advance in my intellectual, professional, and spiritual life. Okay, so thank you for saying that because that also answers the question. And I, I didn't, excuse me for not mentioning this. I was just mentioning one side of why fathers would want their daughters to go to school, but I didn't mention why the daughters themselves would want to go to school. So this presents exactly my point. Here we have a woman raised in the West and she wants to be educated to develop herself as a person, uh, develop herself intellectually, spiritually, and so forth. Whereas traditional Vedic culture says women shouldn't do that. They should just stay home. So if I told, uh, if your spiritual master said, Jyotirmai, you have to stay home and if you're not married, go find a husband, get married, have lots of kids, stay home and take care of them. That may be something you want to do on your own time frame and your own scale, but you may not want to do it now. Or there may have been a time, maybe you want to do it now, but let's say we go to a time, if you want to do it now, we go to a time when you didn't want to do it. And if your spiritual master said that, that this is Vedic, you should do it. You, even though he told you to do it, it, wouldn't, it would be difficult or impossible or the wrong thing. So that's how, that's this whole concept of taking the Vedic plant and planting it in the West. You need a greenhouse, you need soil, different kind of water, you need all kinds of things to make that plant grow. It doesn't work the same way. And I see a lot of devotees from India don't understand this. They just think, well, this is the Vedic way, why don't we do it? We don't have Vedic samskars. We don't see that way. We don't feel that way necessarily on every level. And someone may say, well, you're bad because you don't feel that way. Okay. Let's say for the sake of argument, we are bad. Jyotirmai is so bad. She should, she should have wanted to get married when she's 13. Instead, she's so bad, she wanted to get an education and go to university and have a profession, professional life and, and a career. And she's so bad for that. Now, nobody in the West would ever say that. And only some very unreasonable, narrow-minded person would say that. Right? But that's the problem. Some people say those things because they say it's not Vedic. Fortunately, Prabhupada didn't think that way. He wasn't like that. He didn't, you know, he had disciples, female disciples who wanted to achieve things. Go for it. Prabhupada was the original go girl. Go Brahmacharini. Yeah, he was right behind them. Go ahead, do it. This is wonderful. More devotees preaching, more service. So thank you for sharing that. A very good point. How to preach chastity to a non-devotee lady? <laughs> By your example. Oh no, 
I can't preach by my example. I don't know what chastity. <laughs> How can you preach something unless you have it? Chitra. <laughs> I'm not saying you don't have it. But I'm guessing, as a Western woman, you probably realize you could use more of it. <laughs> more would be good. So, um, you know, um, I was just listening to a class this morning, and someone asked a question similar to this. They said that, and she was, you know, young girls read in the books about how Prabhupada gives the example that Prakriti is female. Krishna is Purusha, Prakriti is female, and just like the female is, you know, serves the husband as obedient, and the husband is the Purusha, the controller, so material nature is Prakriti. So it's a philosophical point, but then the girls say, wait a minute, the husband's a controller, the girl just is subordinate, and like they, that hits them in the wrong way. Even a philosophical point that relates to that relationship is hard for a lot of women. So, one thing we can explain, and this devotee who was giving the class, he explained that quote of Bhakti Siddhanta. He said, No, there should be mutual respect, admiration, service, Krishna's the center, you know, all these things that seem Vedic of just, you know, subordination of the wife, the wife. He, the devotee was saying, If you take those statements literally, basically the wife's a slave. And unfortunately, some men try to make their women, women, their wives, a little bit like slaves. Now, having said that, that's one side of the equation. Addressing the word chastity, I just heard something horrible. It was brought to the attention of my wife, and I don't want to ruin your day, but I think it's important for us to understand this, of what's going on in the world. Um... There's a movie called Underground Railroad or Underground Railway or a documentary or there's two. One is called Operation Tucson and one is called Underground Railway. It's about, uh, it's about child prostitution and female prostitution in general and child prostitution. I think it's maybe focused on child prostitution. I'm not sure. And there's this huge demand and the greatest demand for it is coming from America. So Americans go to foreign countries where there's child prostitutes to engage with them. So, so America is, high, is largely funding this industry, right? So the man, who, a man who's working to fight this, who's in the documentary, was asked, you know, naturally everybody listens, listens to this and says, this is sick, this is completely sick, said, how is it? And he said, it starts with pornography. He said, pornography is an illusion. You can imagine, you look at pornography, not that you should, but the people who <laughs> look at it, imagine in their minds enjoying with that picture, the person in the picture. So it means, well, in my marriage, I'm not satisfied with my sex. Of course, my, my philosophy of how to be satisfied with sex is just don't have it. But it's not easy for everyone to do. But I found that works also. Sometimes, you know, it's like you can never eat enough potato chips to be satisfied, and the only solution is just don't eat any. And you're like, yeah, I'm much better. I don't eat any potato chips, and I don't have to go through that. 
25, after 25 bags of potato chips, I want the 26th bag syndrome. But that's another topic, another issue, and that's me. So not everybody thinks like me, I know. So so he was saying, there's this, this he said, sex, when it becomes pornography, it starts to become an addiction. So the pornography is feeding the addiction, but as in with any addiction, you need more. So more pornography, different kinds of pornography. And then he said, the kind of like logical end of it is child pornography and then actually engaging in sex with children. So it all started with the urge, The it all started with not controlling the sexual desire. So when you say chastity, what rings true to me is you are, one person, your eyes are not somebody. Your so pornography is is a lack of chastity because your eyes are on another person. Your eyes only on your wife. Your eyes only on your husband, not on other women, other men. So that's what it means to be chaste. So as soon as this sexual desire um, wants to be fulfilled subtly or grossly beyond what you're getting in Grihasta life, you look for something outside, a prostitute, pornography. That's why pornography is so insidious. And a lot of men don't understand it, what's actually going on, but it's destroying their marriage because they have this illusion in their mind of enjoying with these other women. And so their wife is like, man, she's old and fat, or I've done it with her, so now I can do it in my mind with these women. I can you know, vicariously enjoy or I can see sexual scenes and vicariously enjoy. So that's where it takes you. It takes you to child prostitution. And now there are like 20 million or 40 million like child prostitutes in the world. It's insane. A society is, a society is meant to protect children, Brahmins, elderly people, cows, and women. That's a sane society. Are women being protected? No, they're being exploited. Are cows being protected? No. Old, old people, go to the old age home. Brahmins, there aren't even any Brahmins to protect. And if there are, who's supporting the Brahmins these days? You get rich, keep all the money for you. Let me find 10 Brahmins to support. Nobody's doing that. Um, and what was the other one? Old men, cows. We eat the cows, put the old people in the old age home. The women we exploit. Now we're exploiting the children and the Brahmins are. So that's, yeah. So that's the importance of chastity because another important point of chastity, which is hard to explain maybe to non-devotees unless they're religious, is that ultimately we want to learn to control the sexual urge and chastity helps you control it. And you'll say, you know, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting bored I'm getting bored with sex with my partner, you know, been married all these years. That's the whole point, to get bored with it. So you give it up. And instead of giving it up, no, I have to find another woman, another man. Um, I have to look at pornography. I have to go to prostitute. No, you, that's the topsy-turviness of this society. You know, the funny, one of the funniest things, I think, is Viagra. You know, Viagra is a sexual stimulant. And so, if you talk to any brahmachari, they're trying to control, or any man who's trying to be celibate and control himself as best he can, 
If you talk to him about Biagra, they will say, why would you want to take Biagra? We're trying to control ourselves. And then the non-devotee will say, you know, you get old, you lose the desire. So we take Biagra to get the desire. And we're thinking, why would you want to get the desire back? I just spent like 50 years as a brahmachari trying to get rid of it. And yet you're, you're, you want to get it back. Insanity! Insanity! So... I gave a class on sexual, I gave a workshop on sexual purity. Now you're getting part of that workshop right now by maybe divine arrangement, maybe someone needs to hear it. But look at your body. Look, well, you don't have to look at your body, but you can't look at your body if you're older. Um, and look at your body, look at the bodies of older people. What happens when you get older? What happens when you get a certain age? Well, that youthful beauty and sexual attractiveness, it kind of dwindles. Of course, now you can get operations to keep it. But wrinkles, your hair turns gray, it starts falling out, you get the flab, as Prabhupada said. I have a little. I'm still muscular. Flat tire, you get the flat tire. Used to be a full tire. Used to be a full tire. And now you get the flat tire. So you get the flat tire. You're not that attractive. Why? It's nature's arrangement. You're, you're beyond the procreation years. So beyond the procreation years, your body doesn't look so good. Why? It doesn't need to because you're not meant to stimulate your partner for sex because you can't have kids anymore. So it's like, ah, I never thought of that. Duh! That's because we're so sexually obsessed, we don't think anymore. Our brains stop functioning. At least part of them stop functioning. So and then when you're a man, as you get older, your testosterone levels go down. And so a lot of people say, well, that's why you're not healthy or youthful or you're not muscular, so you should take testosterone. But, but nature is saying you don't need it because you're not in procreation mode anymore. And then all these men are going and having stress because they, they're losing their sexual power and desire. And I'm thinking... Hello, that's kind of like you've reached a stage of perfection right now, but you don't have it. Now you can, Now your brain can actually start working. You can actually, you know, think clearly and stop thinking about girls 24-7 and, you know, tr you know, make something out of your life um, a little more spiritual. But instead, where's the Viagra? I need, I need Viagra. I have no sexual desire. This is the personification of materialistic civilization. So chastity means one person, get completely <laughs> bored with that person sexually. Fantastic. It's over. Now you can, your kids are out. You can be vanaprast. You know, renounce, sell all your, sell half the things in your house, you know, spend half your time in, in the dom. And you like, you don't have any sex desire. Wow, thank you, Krishna. You took it away. I'm so happy best day of my life. But for them, it's the worst day of their life. So, you, right? I mean, I don't have to say anymore. You understand this. Hare Krishna. That was a section from my class on sexual purity. And the class is on my SoundCloud if you want to see more. Maybe I'm wrong. If I am, please correct me. I don't, Srila Prabhupada, I don't think Srila Prabhupada was preaching Vedic culture. He was preaching to stay where we are and who we are, and just add Krishna to our lives. To be honest, I have...
Hmm. To be honest, I have allergy hearing Vedic culture. Preaching so-called Vedic culture, we're losing many potential devotees. Most of the people don't are not looking for Vedic culture. They're more looking for changing consciousness, looking for spirituality. Yeah. It's it's yeah. I think I think we could rephrase what you said and make one addition or one uh, add one nuance. If people were able to adopt it and it was useful and helpful, Prabhupada would have gone with it more. But he went with it as far as it was helping them spiritually. And if he saw it wasn't necessary or wasn't helping them spiritually, or non-devotees wouldn't relate to it, he didn't push it. In um, When I grew up as a devotee, the word Vedic was, it was actually, when I grew up as a devotee, I mean during Prabhupada's time, the word Vedic was really wasn't used much. It was kind of like, why are you talking Vedic? We're not trying to be Vedic, we're just trying to be Krishna conscious. That was the pervading consciousness. Like the, the I, nobody, you know, you listen to classes in those days, nobody talked about Vedic. And of course, someone might say, that's because we were ignorant or foolish. We didn't know, we had to establish Varnashram, Prabhupada didn't push it. Obviously, there's truth to that. But we never had the concept that that was like the goal of Krishna consciousness to make everything Vedic. And even if you establish Varnashram in the West, it's not going to mimic ideal Vedic. It'll have all the. It'll have obviously the basic elements of Varnashram, but you can't adapt people to something that is goes against them. And that's why it's so, it's so interesting to travel, to different countries because different people adapt Krishna consciousness differently in different countries. And when you see it, you're like, okay, it's just different because this culture is different. It's just the way it is. And I don't think that could ever change, and I don't think we'd ever want to change it. There'd be no need to change it. It's just the way it is. And you change it to the degree that you can. Certain things are fundamental practices and principles. They have to be there. Vedic, not Vedic, whatever you call them, Vaishnava, Bhakti, other things. Uh, which are less important or unnecessary, we wouldn't push it if the people can't adapt to it. Right? So, there's this egalitarian view in marriage that a lot of proponents of Varnashram feel is, is a Western contamination. But, let's say we, we push an idea, a Vedic idea, of, of a very lopsided um power structure then um, actually I have to get off the phone now I have to get off because I'm, I have a call coming up and someone's calling me about the call so I'll just you have a um, basically I'm saying you just have something that doesn't work in the western even though it's Vedic it just it just doesn't work well then you would you would just say no. This is this is. I know it's Vedic, in this context it works. A lot of times when I look at the Vedic, I think you know this is so much better. But it it people can't do this. Even devotees can't do it. I say I wish devotees could do this, but they can't. It's not their mindset. It's not their culture. It's not the way they think. It's not the way they live. So um, what can you do? 
it's it's the way it is, and Prabhupada dealt with that. So, on that happy ending, so true about bald heads. Yeah, if you saw someone with a bald head in 1965, you'd be running across the street or pulling out your knife. I love your common sense. I hope that all can understand points at some point. <laughs> Give me a lot of hope. Thank you. Pierogi. She likes her pierogi. I I grew up on cinnamon toast. Is cinnamon toast Vedic? I don't know. Yes, Prabhu, if you offer it to Krishna, it's Vedic. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. For me, being a Westerner is not very hard to accept Vedic culture, and I'm trying to understand it. Hearing from His Holiness Bhaktivedya Purnaswami, just to avoid misinterpretations. Yeah. So, um, see, the point is, Varshana, not everybody's like you. And, and for two reasons. Not everybody gets to hear Bhaktivedya Purnaswami explain everything, why it's better. And even after hearing it's better, if they do, not everybody wants to do it. Because even if you look, if you look at the graduates of the Gurukul who know all the Vedic stuff, they're still fundamentally from another country. In fact, we have one of the graduates living next door. So, you know, we interact. And he's very Krishna conscious and he loved the school and so forth. But he's an American. So he probably likes pizza and spaghetti and this and that. And he loves the Vedic also. So I think it's everyone's individual. It's a combination. So um, that was my point. Sometimes you see the Vedic and say, this is better. But you realize the way we were raised and the way we think, it just doesn't resonate with us. It doesn't work with us. And you might say, well, that's a contamination. It's a problem. On the other hand, you can say, it's just a reality. And Prabhupada did deal with that reality. So that was my point. You you can push the Vedic with those who can adapt to it, who want to, who love it, who like it. You know, you go to Mayapur and you know some devotees are dressing like their local Maya, Mayapur residents. You can see the way they wear their dhoti and their chowder. And others are wearing like a t-shirt and yogi pants. You know, like whatever. The main thing is to be Krishna conscious. So on this happy note, can we end? Our movement should be a place for those who want to be Vedic and those who don't. Exactly, that was my point. Some people like it, some people don't. There will be varieties, so Krishna West, Krishna East, Krishna South, and Krishna North. Good for everyone. Bhaktin Selene. All right, in your next life. Thank you for this class. I was thinking about this. What is Vedic? What is Krishna conscious? Not Vedic in the sense. Traditional features of our culture. I think the, the big problem is thinking everything Indian is Vedic. And the hands closed. But how to know we accept aspects to incorporate? Um, incorporate what you can. But the real point is bhakti. So, you know, just to be Vedic in itself is not... Oh, you're not the Tanya. Unfortunately, not that Tanya. There are other Tanyas in the world. Yeah, the point is to be Krishna conscious, not to be Vedic. And if Vedic helps you, then do it. If you don't relate to it, it's awkward, it's, you know, then 
then do it. Do what you do with bhakti. Offer your cinnamon toast and offer your pizza with bhakti. There's more uh, in this movie, Underground, where I saw an interview with a guy. He said there's more slavery in the world today than ever. It's sexual slavery. There's kids, so many. Like, it's incredible the, what's going on on this planet. And when you hear these things, you think, yeah, if Krishna consciousness got in people's hearts, they would be a little respectful, don't you think, towards other people and not exploit them. Mm. We pick up tomorrow, Subhadra in the spiritual world. Yeah, we didn't get read, they read much today. My husband told me, old man asking for Viragra in his office. I thought they already lost their sexual desire. Yeah. That the biggest fear, <laughs> the biggest fear of the old man, he loses his sexual desire. Uh, that's actually his greatest fortune. He doesn't know. We're so fortunate to have a chance to listen to you preaching for having such fundamental mindset. Thank you, Hare Krishna. You're welcome. Would love to share this lecture. Okay. You can share the, the part about chastity, I think. Well, whatever. Vedic culture, but then if you share it, I'll get in trouble because the, the Vedic proponents may disagree and get mad at me. I'm just trying to be balanced. I don't, I don't, uh, Jyotirmai is waiting to, for me to come to uh, Italy. You know, I was in Italy and every night they had pizza. I think they had it for breakfast and lunch and dinner and snacks also. So you're not going to get pizza out of the blood of the Italians, no matter how... Well, maybe the Vedic ones. I doubt even the Vedic ones, they'll make their pizza on chapatis to be Vedic. But you, you get my point, right? The ultimate point is what will make people Krishna conscious. That's what we're most concerned. And as much Vedic as we can adapt, it's just going to make it easier or better. But in some cases, it makes it difficult for people because they can't relate to it. And my main point was you need context because if you don't have the support of context, then you plant the Vedic seed and it becomes poisonous. Like the chaste woman who gets beaten by her husband because that's Vedic. The husband's always right. That's Vedic. The woman's always wrong. Subordinate servant. That's Vedic. Fine. It works perfectly when you have the right husband who's loving, compassionate, caring, and so forth. It's natural she wants to subordinate herself. That's the point. It doesn't happen as a slave or by force. That's where the Vedic becomes a problem because it's not it's not put in the proper context. Vedic pizza with dal on the top. Okay, make it and try it. I don't think it's going to taste good. Okay, I have to go. Hare Krishna to all of you and uh, see you tomorrow for more for more fun and philosophy. Maybe we have to change it instead of laughing your way back to Godhead. Fun and philosophy. Hare Krishna. But I'm so depressed now that this didn't sound good. I have to borrow my friend's microphone and we'll try that out. The only problem with my friend's microphone is you're going to hear the AC like a storm. But hopefully soon we'll get new AC, which is quiet. And then all problems will be solved until more problems come. <laughs> All problems solved until more problems come. Hare Krishna.